This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Elizabeth Graver, author of the novel Cantica. In my reading and teaching, I've just gotten really interested in books about migration, books by second or third or even first generation, mostly American. So I've been teaching migration literature. We'll be back with Elizabeth Graver after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Elizabeth Graver, author of five novels, including Awake, The Honey Thief, Unraveling, and The End of the Point, which was longlisted for the 2013 National Book Award in Fiction and selected as a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. Her story collection is called Have You Seen Me? She teaches at Boston College. Her new novel is called Cantica and follows the joys and losses of Rebecca Cohen, who is the spirited daughter of a Sephardic elite couple in early 20th century Istanbul. When her family loses their wealth, they must move to Barcelona, a country they've never lived in, to create a new life. As Rebecca grows into adulthood, she must contend with a failed marriage, the need to make a living, and the pleasures and challenges of motherhood in three countries as she moves from Spain to Cuba to the U.S., Cantica explores exile, identity, and family history. We began with Elizabeth Graver sharing the genesis of the novel, Cantica. So my maternal grandparents were both born in Turkey into Sephardic Jewish families. And my grandmother in particular was an incredibly good and vivid storyteller, not not literary at all, um, very artistic. She liked to draw. She'd been a dressmaker by trade. She was constantly making things. So Rebecca, my grandmother, I use her real name in the book, was a real talker. And I knew she'd had a complicated history. And as a child, I was confused by it in some ways because she would talk about how she was Spanish. She didn't often use the word Sephardic. Um, and she spoke a language over my head to my grandfather that I sort of thought was Spanish, but it turns out it was Ladino or Judeo-Spanish, which is the kind of old Spanish mixed with a lot of contact languages and Hebrew and Turkish and French, et cetera, that the Sephardic Jewish community she was born into spoke. Um, so as a kid, I was kind of confused. Like I knew she was from Turkey. I knew she'd lived in Spain. I knew Cuba was in there somewhere for my grandfather. Actually, so was Mexico. And I had this kind of sense of this rich story that I didn't fully understand. And so when I was 21, so I guess a junior in college, I actually taped my grandmother telling stories. And, you know, I've been thinking back as to what led me to do that. It wasn't for a class. I think I was curious. And I was also, even then, even more now, very aware of time passing and of wanting to kind of hold on to things. She was old. She died a few years later. Um, so that was in the 80s, late 80s. Um, and I, I taped her and we had these wonderful conversations where she was really vivid and used sound effects and told me these pretty wild stories that were scattered about in their setting. Some of them were set in the U.S. One was about her husband had kind of left her um, and gone back to Turkey from Spain. And she took her sons on this journey to find him and arrived to find he was dead. So there was all of this incredible material with a lot of holes. And I also didn't ask her that many questions. It was kind of two or three mini cassette tapes. But I did this. And, and then 
I think at the time I thought about writing about her and she has shown up obliquely or even explicitly here and there in my writing over the years, but decades passed. I'm 58 now, like a really long time before I really turned to this and decided to try to turn it into something. And and we can talk more about that process and sort of why I chose fiction. There's, there were a lot of pieces to it and the book took me almost a decade to write. So it's, it's been a, you know, people talk about slow food. This is the slow book. Um, and it's been with me for a really long time. And I think I was scared to start it because it was really hard, but it was also really fun and close to my heart. What do you think occurred in your life that it felt like time to write this? Such a good question. I think it was a few things. I think some of them were personal. I think the next generation down from my grandmother, so my uncles and my mother were getting old. And I was aware of several things. One of the fact that they had access to pieces of this story that I needed to get while they were still around, but even more in a way that I wanted them to get to witness what I was going to do with this, that it felt like a kind of gift to my mother and my uncles. So some of it was that, some of it was very, you know, deeply personal. This is my family. I want to find these stories and I want to offer them this book. And then the other two pieces I think were one, what was going on in the world with the refugee crisis and the fact that in my reading and teaching, I've just gotten really interested in books about migration, books by second or third or even first generation, mostly Americans. So I've been teaching migration literature. Um, I've been increasingly teaching students at Boston College who are themselves, you know, Gen 1.5 or first generation Americans. And the stories are just so rich and so timely and many of them very different from my own family story. But the layers and the way in which these stories of displacement and migration and crossing cultures and languages kind of get at things that are central to being human, just is very moving and interesting to me. And then I think the third piece is that it took me a long time to feel confident enough to write a book like this, because it just is set in so many places and it crosses languages and it intersects with major world events. So when you you did come to the page, I'm curious about your experiences of both maybe the liberation of writing fiction, but also maybe the the constraints that maybe you put on yourself or the places that you got stuck because it was true, a lot of it was true, that I know sometimes people, especially like in new writing classes, people are like, you know, just because it has happened doesn't mean it belongs in this book. So I'm curious about the points of kind of expansion and contraction for you as a writer. That's such a good question. That was what was the hardest thing about this book, even more than figuring out the languages and the, the, the details. So, and it's why it took me so long. So a couple years before I really finished it, I kind of thought I was finished, but the whole last third of it, I ended up ditching and redoing. And I think that's mostly because in the last third, I actually had more access to real material and I was inventing less. But 
it didn't work. It just was, it, it, it took us in a totally different direction. Um, so I think for me, for this book, I wanted it to be kind of kaleidoscopic and to follow multiple people. Rebecca is the through line and it always returns to her, but I went into a character based on my great grandfather, very loosely based because I never met him, nor did my mother. Um, and into a whole bunch of other characters. But I think when I got to the places where I actually had the most information, in some ways, that's where I had to be ruthless with myself and with the story and think, okay, this is interesting, but why would we turn this way right now, except that I have this fabulous photo from the newspaper and a ton of good material, but it, it doesn't actually work. So there were a lot of moments like that. And then there were other moments where the stuff I found just opened up so beautifully into fiction that it, it didn't feel like a conflict at all. And, and my research was manifold. Like I did it multiple. I did, you know, I did oral history stuff, but I also read lots of books. I went to Turkey, Spain, and Cuba. So it was coming from a lot of different directions. And there was a lot of winnowing, but I, I do think that even more than winnowing, there were these sort of gifts where I'd have a conversation and be like, oh my God, that's a scene. You know, that it, it, it was a really productive approach for me and really interesting because it was so filled with surprises, but it did mean that there was a lot of material I had to cast off eventually. Um, you mentioned uh, just that you had, you know, this great photo. And one of the characteristics of this book is in the beginning of each chapter, there is a historical photo that I'm assuming are your family members. The photos are your family members. Uh -huh. And they they sort of correspond. You know, if you're talking about a place like Istanbul, maybe you have about the age your grandmother um, was with maybe her parents, a picture and things like that. So it, it is, there is this transparency for a reader who may not even read like your introductory or your end notes that might cue them to the fact like there's more going on here. Yeah. And, I, you know, again, those photos, I met with some resistance. I, th there was one editor who made an offer to publish the book, but said I would need to take the photos out. And fortunately, I found an editor who loved the photos and I think understood what I was doing with them and actually helped me do it better. But I, I wanted the photos to signal that there was, you know, this book is sort of playing with genre, right? It's a little bit on the kind of nonfiction edge. And at the same time, it really genuinely is a novel so the photos for me, one, I think they're very visually beautiful and interesting. I just, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to look at. So I, I liked, I'm interested in the book as a physical tactile object. Like it, it has a beautiful cover, um, you know, which was not my design, but I love of a kind of broken Turkish tile. Um, and, and I was interested particularly in the context of migration in photographs, because back then before all of our, you know, web world and smartphones, et cetera, um, they were things that were rare and they were things that in my grandmother's case, she carried with her, you know, she couldn't take much, but she, she was an incredible 
keeper of records. And so we have them and they were fascinating to me. Like I could read the back of them and see, oh, this was taken on Rue Perra. And oh, there's the name of the photographer. And then I dig a little and turns out he's Armenian, which is, you know, given the time period and what was soon to happen with the Armenian genocide, a really potent fact. Um, so I was interested in them as kind of objects, as objects that signaled a story behind and that would maybe even invite the reader to think, okay, I have some photos, like what could I do with them? Like, how can I read them? What might they say? What? How might they lie? Um, because, you know, they're also constructions. Um, and then I was also actually really interested in how photos work inside the book, because sometimes they're just ways to remember family or ways to kind of get a sense of yourself. Rebecca was quite performative. She dressed well. She changed her dress to fit into different cultures so she could sort of pass. She was quite beautiful. So the question of kind of gaze. But then I was also interested in the photos as kind of almost utilitarian things, right? Like you need an arranged marriage, you're a widow, you have to send a photo, or you need to become a citizen, you need to prove something. So they, they work in a lot of different ways, both as, as you said, beginnings of chapters, like they're sitting there and the reader can see them, but they're actually threaded through the actual text in various ways. So the, the, I just thought it was a really rich thing. I taught a class um, as I was working on this called Text and Photo, where I was reading you know, Seabald and Janet Malcolm and um, Claudia Rankin, all sorts of writers who were doing interesting things. I, I got a little obsessed. <laughs> you chose to begin the first and last chapter with almost the same lines, um, which is uh, this, the beautiful time. And then you go into a description, like, for instance, the first chapter says this, the beautiful time, the time of wingspans, leaps and open doors of the heedless headlong flow from here to there. And then at the last chapter, you start with this, the beautiful time, period. And you go on, it turns out that there can be more than one in a lifetime. And if mostly they are viewed as such in hindsight and when funneled through the soft, distorted lens of nostalgia, sometimes you can catch a moment as it happens and you are deep inside your life. And it is unremarkable because lacking, ojo malo, tumult and remarkable because steeped in joy and full of nothing but itself. So I wanted to ask you about this craft choice. It's obviously very intentional. There's definitely a musicality to it, which we can talk about the title as well. But um, just your discovery process of this is what you wanted to do. And then I would imagine if you wanted to do that, then there would be a feeling that you have to get these lines completely, like you have to nail them. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't actually remember making a decision about the repetition, but but I was very conscious that it was there. And it, it comes up at one other point in the middle, I think. And I think what it ended up being about for me, which was a process of discovery, I, I certainly didn't know it. I think I wrote the first line before I knew I would be repeating it. Like the book started that way for a long time. But eventually, I became really interested in how I think this story is partly about both nostalgia and sort of the dangers of nostalgia and the ways in which people, particularly Rebecca, who 
my grandmother and the character in the book were kind of gifted at this, managed to find joy in reframed in different ways. So at the beginning, she's from this very prosperous family and she's surrounded by other Sephardic Jews, but also goes to school with Muslim kids and with Christian kids at a Catholic school. And it's very cosmopolitan. And there's, you know, obviously prejudice and complications, but it's not figuring strong in her life. And and her family has a lot of money. Um, And she has this kind of blessed early childhood with open doors and a sense of music and song and culture and generations and extended family. And then all of that is shattered with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And then as time goes on, various other cataclysmic events, right? Like the Spanish Civil War and the Holocaust and multiple migrations. And yet at the same time, you know, I don't want to give away too much about the end of the book, but she keeps re she keeps transforming. So even if there's just she has scant materials, she has to like kind of I, I, I always think about a beautiful essay by the writer Edwidge Danticott, who I love, um, called All Immigrants Are Artists, where she talks about how um, one example she gives is that when she's little, she and her mother would look at dresses in shop windows and her mother would say, Eh, those aren't that nice. I can make you something better. And then she would, from her bits and pieces, put together a dress that was nice, but was in fact an imitation of the other dress that they couldn't afford, right? So that kind of ingenuity and creativity, but also, and I think you see it in a lot of women, immigrants, and in in some men, um, the ability to just keep finding ways to duplicate these things that you were gifted with as a child, which in Rebecca's case are sort of family and beauty and performance and music. So that last scene towards the end of the novel where where I repeat that, she's in what I guess to an external view might look like really reduced circumstances, right? Like they've made this life in Queens, but they have this shop and it's a ton of work and they have anti-Semitic incidents and they're robbed. And she's, you know, she had had kind of aspirations to be like a singer or an actress or, uh, and, and in fact, she's doing like really basic community theater at her little synagogue, you know, with the sisterhood. Um, so, you know, making curtains that from stuff she finds at rummage sales and putting together all kinds of hodgepodge things but like, she loves it. It's great. Like she's actually made friends and they're not the friends she would have predicted. And there's loss. And she's in that scene, deeply aware of who's not there and of what she's left behind. But she's also kind of refiguring her community. So I'm I'm really interested in, in what it means to be able to do that without romanticizing right without kind of being like this is as good as what you left behind but also without overly romanticizing the past so that question of kind of how nostalgia works how being inside a moment and not always thinking about the past works in the context of both migration and you know because I never migrated I've had an incredibly stable life but just in the context of aging like what does it mean to sort of be inside something and living it fully while also not kind of 
erasing loss and, and what came before, if that makes sense. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. With the language, I think it was the last section I read like a little bit that was in a, in Ladino and you uh-huh. have sprinkled it throughout the book. And I'm curious about your study of this language, how you inserted it into the book, how you knew where you wanted to put it. Um, as you said, it's this mixture of many languages. And then um, the title, I believe, is in that language as well. Yes, the title Kentika means little song. Um, and I, again, I, I thought my editor would balk. I said, I have an, a weird idea for a title. And she, her name's Reva Hockerman, and she, she really got this book. And it was a, a really a pleasure to work with her on it. Um, and she said, weird is good. What do you think? And I said, Cantica. And, you know, we had to kind of run it through various people to make sure it wasn't too odd because no one knows what it means, right? And the spelling, like much of Ladina, which doesn't even quite have a standard spelling or Judeo-Spanish, which is the more kind of correct term for the language, um, there's a K instead of a C because that's how it's written. So it, it's a word that signals the oddity and the kind of crossing and foreignness, I think. Um, I certainly am not an expert in Ladino at all, but I did, while I was writing the book, find a course at Tufts right down the road from me, taught by this wonderful woman, Gloria Asher. And I sat in on it. That was so hard. Like these youngsters picked it up so much faster than I did. (laughs) And I speak uh, French, but not Spanish. So if I spoke Spanish, I would have a a real leg up, but French helped a little bit. Um, And then I really just relied a lot. There's so much online, you know, and actually during COVID, there was this interesting kind of revival with of Ladino where people were taking classes online. And there's a program at SUNY Binghamton. I've connected with um, some musicians, which there was quite a bit out there. Um, and Gloria had, gave me several books, um, but I had to be pretty selective, both because of the, my own limitations, because I'm not fluent in it. And also because, you know, the novel's in English, if you don't want to totally irritate people by throwing in languages. And it, it actually wasn't just Ladino, because one of the characteristics of that Sephardic community, and it was true of both my grandparents, is that they're incredibly multilingual. So they would speak Ladino at home. When she was little, she spoke Ladino at home, but she was educated in French. And I used to speak French with her. She was fluent. Um, and from kind of being out on the street, she spoke some Turkish and some Greek. Eventually, she spoke English, although that was interestingly the language she really had the hardest time with. So, yeah, so I had to make decisions about where do I put it? And a lot of the time it was around music and and kind of adages because there's a very rich Sephardic tradition. And then I would have to figure out where do you translate? Do you use italics or not? You know, which is a, a whole thing because some writers now make a decision not to use italics because it signals otherness in a way that is, can be complicated. I, I think we ultimately decided that given how many things I was dropping in here italics would be a friendly cue to the reader so we we use them so as you mentioned you know rebecca grew up very wealthy in what is now istanbul 
and uh, had lots of privilege, you know, went to this private school, as you mentioned, thought she'd be an actress or a singer. And you, we know as a reader that her father is maybe living a little bit above the means. Like he used to have a lot of money, but he likes to gamble and his factory wasn't making that much. So they were kind of on the cusp of their lives changing anyway. And then there was some kind of, um, there was a time when, you know, the Ottoman empire was collapsing and there was fear that boys, young men would be conscripted into the military. And so her family had to make a decision to leave and it was hard. And it was also like his factory had been taken over and he didn't have the, you know, the deed to it. So there were, there were things going on besides just politically that maybe push their family out, but it was a difficult decision to leave. And they go to Barcelona back to sort of where their heritage, at least where their DNA and their genes are. And he takes a job tending a synagogue. So just wanted to talk a little bit more about that shift of, of moving cultures and going back to where you were once from, but not really wanted. And once they got there, having to hide who they are, hide their Judaism Yeah. So this was something that in real life was a really strange and fascinating part of my family story. And and when I would tell people my family moved from Turkey to Spain, they were actually people who really know this world. They were skeptical. Like, what do you mean? There there weren't Sephardic Jews in Spain at that era. And there were very, very few. Um, So and the whole question of what does it mean to go back? So, you know, during the Spanish Inquisition, the Jews were either forced to convert or killed, or they fled. And my family fled, right? And we don't know exactly where they, it was a long time ago, it was the 1400s, where they were from, or, you know, there were Jews, Sephardic Jews who fled first from Spain to Portugal, and then to the Ottoman Empire. So the exact details are are fuzzy, but they did always kind of say, we are from Spain and their language and a lot of their food and their stories. And, you know, my grandmother loved to dance with castanets. There was a lot of pleasure in Spanish culture at the same time that it was a country that had committed atrocities against the Jews who had lived there. So that question of what does it mean to, quote, go back is really complicated. And in the novel, and again, I don't know the real facts at this point because too much time had passed and there was no one I could ask, but that it's not their first choice. Um, many Jews left Turkey a little bit earlier. So my grandfather, who was from a very poor family, got into the United States before 1924 when there was a very kind of um, big and prejudiced immigration act that kept out all sorts of people, including people from um, Turkey and Jews. So the way I kind of figured out how to explain this was that they couldn't get into the U.S. at that point. They would have rather go. It wasn't like they were like, oh, Spain is our homeland. Let's go. There just weren't a lot of choices. And there was at that point this kind of odd law, which is mirrored by one that took place in the past couple of years with Spain, where they were giving citizenship to people with Sephardic roots. Um, And with the kind of story, surface story being, you know, we're making up for our past sins and we welcome you, but that really, like almost all of these migration laws, it had kind of political aims and 
neo-colonial aims because there were a lot of Sephardic Jews in the in North Africa and in the former Ottoman Empire who spoke Ladino, who the Spanish government thought would help them with their kind of fading empires and their trade. There were a lot of Sephardic traders. So this is a long-winded way of saying that that my family in the book and in real life ended up going there. And and I think it was a really difficult place to end up, partly because no sooner had they gotten there than the Spanish Civil War came and then years and years of fascism. So my grandmother left, but I still have relatives in Spain. And I also think that being Jewish in Spain was and actually still is to some extent, although, you know, with 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 some change and there are some flourishing Jewish communities there, but a very odd place to be Jewish, both because there were so few Jews in the 1920s and because the history was so complicated and there were actually a lot of people who had converted and who were secretly practicing in their basement or who were considered new Christians, and there's a lot of prejudice against them. So it was just a really kind of vexed place to be Jewish. And at the same time, Rebecca, with her kind of endless capacity for joy and beauty, is kind of excited. Like she's like, you know, can run around the city and it's beautiful and it's Western. And there's this kind of, you know, also problematic, but overvaluing of the West over the East. And she's kind of psyched to be getting closer to Paris. So it's complicated, but her father's the one who has the hardest time. And he is both pretty plugged into what's happening politically. And also he just really loves Istanbul. He's old. He doesn't want to start again. And he was a character who I didn't expect to inhabit in terms of point of view. And he just I don't know, like if I found my way inside his head and I found him incredibly interesting and 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 moving. He's a kind of somewhat dissolute guy, right? Like you said, he gambles and he's not good at his business, but he's spiritual and he loves to garden and he has all these kind of lovely sides, but he's also, he's just not at a phase in his life when he's going to be robust about this. And, and so the mix of the two of them, this young person who's kind of looking for change and excited to explore the world. And then this old man who does read the paper every day and has much more awareness of what's happening politically, but is also a little paranoid and bitter. And then putting them in this sort of semi-hidden temple where he he lies to his daughter and says that he's been asked to be the rabbi, but in fact, he's been asked to be the shamas, which is kind of more than a janitor, but, you know, he's got to keep the place clean and he does run some services, but it, it, it's not an elevated position. So it's a big step down for him. Do you think there's anything related to the fact that he was an unexpected character that you went deeper into? Um, because he was one of the ones that was almost entirely fictive because you didn't. Maybe. Yeah. I do actually wonder that. I felt a kind of freedom with him. I did. That nobody was going to be able to say, oh, that's not who he really was. And I only had just a few little facts about the real person. I knew he loved to garden. I knew he didn't do a good job with his business. And, and yeah, following him did feel really interesting and kind of like an opening out. 
That's really interesting. Like, I wonder what lessons there are, like what you would either tell your students or not that you wouldn't say, well, don't don't write a fiction story based on real people. But there is a different energy maybe in his character or when you talk about him, it's it's different. So you kind of braided these two things together. And I don't know if there's any lasting lessons from that or not. I'm always reluctant to tell students what to do in any definitive way. So much of it depends on the project and the book and the person. But I I guess one lesson would be that if you're writing about real people, you need, and you're doing it as fiction, you need to kind of try as much as possible to allow yourself the latitude to kind of move around and invent. But at the same time, the facts can be incredibly interesting as openings into imagination. So there are ways in which with some of the other characters about whom I knew more, that was also a gift. So it, it, it really depends, but I, I think it did take more revision with those characters in certain ways. At the same time, there were moments when I wished I had known more about him. And I was also trying so hard to be historically accurate that even if I wasn't writing about real people, I was kind of, you know, well, what office would he go to to try to migrate and what would be the choices? And I I did an incredible amount of research. I mean, almost a crazy amount, but I actually really like it. It just seems really fascinating to have had your, your real grandmother. She died when you were fairly young. And then you created this character, Rebecca, and we see her through her childhood in Constantinople, moving to Barcelona, becoming a dressmaker, a tailor, someone who made clothes, very nice clothes in Barcelona, having to hide her Judaism, having to, um, you know, get married to a man she didn't really love and have two children and then move to Cuba and then end up in America, as you said, in these plays with the sisterhood. So you really lived out this whole life for your grandmother and... I wonder if it left you with more questions or fewer. In some ways with more, and I'm very conscious that it's a novel. I mean, I'm very conscious, in fact, that I don't want my family to think that it's the truth. You know, and it's been interesting because my cousin Rachel has been reading it and sending me all these lovely texts. And there was one interesting moment where she said, oh, grandma got me dolls like that from Cuba, too. And I was like, wait, but I made that up, you know, so the the lines uh, for both me and family members, you know, maybe I just happened, I guess I just happened upon something or maybe I had a residual unconscious memory. But I, I am conscious of, especially with people with a familial connection to the book, kind of insisting on reminding them that it's fiction because because it is that I it's it's any character in some ways going to be more about my inner life than the person's right because I only really have access to my own so in that way I think I feel slightly nervous that that it will sort of supplant the truth which is of course more complicated right I mean you can't write fiction that encompasses the complexity of any human being. It's it's just people, it it, it doesn't submit to that. People are too complicated. I don't know what my grandmother would have thought. She really liked attention. Um, And, and she didn't see me as a storyteller and as an artist. And from when I was very, very tiny, you know, she was kind of, we would draw together. I have a doll that she made with me. Um, she she kind of understood. I think she saw me as sort of in a line of people in her family who 
were creative in that way. And, and I hope she would appreciate that I've devoted all of this loving attention. But of course, I also at times am kind of calling her out for being narcissistic or difficult. You know, I'm not trying to write a kind of tribute, right? It's a, it's a novel. Like I'm trying to write about people struggling and, and working things out and they're flawed as is everybody. So in that way, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what, how it would sit, if that makes sense. I probably wouldn't have written it when she was alive. (laughs) I wouldn't have dared. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Sure. Um, It was fun when you gave me that question to prepare because I had all sorts of ideas. But what I thought I would read from is a story that connects to me to this book in particular by Tilly Olson, her 1956 story, I Stand Here Ironing, which is about a mother struggling with kind of raising children in in difficult conditions and in poverty and also really about the complexity of people. So I'll read it just a little bit of it. So in this this moment, um, the narrator has been notified by her 19-year-old daughter, Emily's teacher, that there's cause for concern that Emily's struggling and the mom has been asked to come in for a meeting. Um, So Emily is coming home at at this moment. She is coming. She runs up the stairs two at a time with her light, graceful step. And I know she's happy tonight. Whatever it was that occasioned your call did not happen today. Aren't you ever gonna finish the ironing, mother? Emily says, Whistler painted his mother in a rocker. I'd have to paint mine standing over an ironing board. This is one of her communicative nights. She tells me everything and nothing as she fixes a plate of food out of the icebox. She is so lovely. Why did you want me to come in at all? Why were you concerned? She will find her way. She starts up the stairs to bed. Don't get me up with the rest in the morning. But I thought you were having midterms. Oh, those. She comes back in and says quite lightly, in a couple years, when we'll all be Adam dead, they won't matter a bit. She has said it before, she believes it, but because I've been dredging the past and all that compounds a human being is so heavy and meaningful in me, I cannot endure it tonight. I will never total it all now. I will never come in to say she was a child seldom smiled at. Her father left me before she was a year old. I worked her first six years when there was work or I sent her home and to his relatives. There were years when she had care she hated. She was dark and thin and foreign looking in a world where the prestige went to blondness and curly hair and dimples, slow where glibness was prized. She was the child of anxious, not proud love. We were poor and could not afford for her the soil of easy growth. I'm going to skip a little bit. Let her be so that all that is in her will not bloom. But in how many does it? There is still enough to live by. Only help her to believe, help make it. So there is cause for her to believe that she is more than this dress on the ironing board, helpless before the iron. Can you share more about why you chose that? 
Yeah, I mean, I I love that passage. I love the the sense of this mother as both being loving and failing. Like she's trying so hard. Partly as a mother, I probably love that. That you can sort of want everything from your child, but that you can't always pave the way for them. And then even more than that, I love the line, I will never total it all now. I will never come in to say, and then she says it, right? So it's like, she's trying so hard to make meaning and to understand her kid and to kind of root her kid in the conditions of her childhood, which was really important for me in my book too, right? What does it mean to be born into this or that? Like, how does that make you who you are? But then at the same time, Emily, the character, keeps surprising her. So she's shy and anxious, but she's an incredible comic actress. And so I guess the the complexity in this pretty tiny story of both the outside conditions and, and the mix of both love and bewilderment, and you can't quite totalize a person, but also that people are just so complicated and they, they keep surprising you and that you'll think somebody's one thing um, and, and there's something else. And then this, you know, let her be, there is still enough left to live by only help her believe that the charge of a parent of kind of all of these things of when do you leave your kid alone? When do you not intervene? When do you worry? When do you witness, um, and in this case, what does it mean that this child was the first child born to a, a poor mother in an immigrant community? And kind of, you know, how does birth order play in all of those things? It just is it felt incredibly uh, I've loved the story for a long time, but I thought about it particularly as I was writing this book, because these questions of parenthood and how one comes to be and how you both are a product of your situation and beyond it and filled with your own particular qualities and surprises just is, is kind of packed in there in a, I think a pretty extraordinary way. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you just really like. Sure. I'll, I'll read. So there's a little section in Cantica where there's a filmmaker who shows up at the temple in Barcelona and, and wants to make a film of the family. And I'll read the section actually, because it was one of the really hard sections that gets to a lot of what you brought up about real life. So this filmmaker turned out in real life to be this fascinating, creepy man who started out as a kind of avant-garde literary editor and writer um, and kind of liked the Jews, but in this sort of weirdly fetishizing way, he wasn't Jewish himself. Um, And then eventually became a fascist. And eventually when the tides turned and he was kind of trying to figure out where Spain was going and how to keep Spain or restore Spain to its former grandeur, you know, did things like try to set up Hitler with the sister of the of Primo de Rivera, who was the the leader of Spain at that point. So it was a huge story when this guy walked in. And one of my real struggles with this section was how to bring him in, because I had actually found a film that he made that had my family unattributed in it. And it was just I had these images and I just was really interested in the fact that he had come and filmed them without having Jimeno Caballero like storm in and take over the novel. So I'll just read a little, a little bit. You know, I should say this chapter was so much longer and I kept, my agent said, I think you need to cut it. So I cut a little. And then my editor was like, I think you need to cut it. So I cut a little more. And then she was like, no, 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 I, I really, you need to cut it. 
and nobody made me get rid of it, but it was a battle. Um, Okay, so the filmmaker has returned from a tour of Sarajevo, Bucharest, Istanbul, Tetuan, Salonika, so many exotic places. With support from the Spanish Ministry of State, he's taken on the dual task of offering Sephardic Jews a deeper knowledge of their Iberian heritage and making a little film to educate Spaniards about the national treasure of the half a million Spanish Jews abroad. Why, Alberto asks, Alberto being Rebecca's father. Of course, says the filmmaker, that's the central question, though many people fail, fail, fail to ask it. For the Judio Sephardi, Spain is still a patria. Alberto shuffle, shuffles some papers on his desk. At the risk of offending you, senor, we've made our lives elsewhere. Span is hardly my patria. I've, now I've come back here, unlike most of us. Back, you say? Back? The pull of a homeland is nothing to scoff at. Jimenez Caballera looks around at the dim light of Alberto's tiny office, really no more than a closet, with a single-pane window, narrow desk, two kitchen chairs, books on a plank shelf, and the nay flute in its case in the corner next to a bucket and a mop. On a second shelf, this one slightly tilted, poorly attached to the wall, a row of prayer books, haggadahs, and an illustrated children's Bible, dog-eared from how many times he'd read the stories to his children. A locked metal trunk houses the ledger books and records of the community. After a long pause, Jimenez Caballero says, you seem, I hope you don't mind my saying so, a highly educated, even a sophisticated man. He taps his temple, smart, were you? Did you also serve as the shimish of a synagogue in Turkey? Shamash, I did not. So that's just a glimpse of their interaction. There was a lot more. <laughs> all right. Do you want to say anything about it or did you feel like you said it all up front? I think I said most of it up front. I mean, I had a whole chunk that telescoped far into the future and followed the filmmaker and said what became of him. And I, it, it's there a teeny bit now. It does say that he you know, get sent off to Venezuela and, you know, it, it, there's a little bit, but I, but I didn't follow him. And I did, I mean, one thing that might be interesting in terms of thinking about what I would tell my students or, you know, writers just starting out, I did write an essay about this in the Jewish Book Council site. Um, and I've, I've thought about even writing a longer thing. So sometimes my feeling is bracket it for now, but it's re if you feel really interested in something, you can use it somewhere else, but you need to be willing to discard it for the shape of whatever you're working on. And that doesn't mean you need to, you know, send it away forever. So I, 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 that is actually, I have an idea for an essay about kind of citizenship and going back and things. My, my daughter, um, who's now 20, wanted to get Spanish citizenship when, with this new law, um, this was during the Trump era. She was like, I need another passport. Um, and we tried and we went back to Spain and back to Spain and went through this labyrinthian crazy process. And it didn't work, even though we have incredibly good evidence. So that was pretty interesting to me. And for her, you know, she's a privileged American. It's not a necessary passport, but there are people from Venezuela and other places, particularly in Latin America, for whom it would change their lives. And how and why this law was brought into effect and why it's so broken and expensive is actually really interesting to me. So, you know, you asked, will I continue with the subject matter? I'm not going to write 
another novel. I don't think about these characters, but there are these little branches of things, maybe in nonfiction that I'm still pretty interested in. Where do you write? I write mostly in my study where I'm sitting right now, but I do love to go to residencies. I actually, this uh, just last uh, last week, got back from a month at a place called the Dora Mar House in Provence. Um, I love going somewhere where I can really cast away all my responsibilities and just work on my writing. And the other thing that I've started doing, which is the benefit of my cell phone, to which I have a very ambivalent relationship, is I walk a lot and I have taken to using a voice record app and recording bits of things because there's something about being in motion and kind of the sidelong relationship to writing where I'm not sitting down to do it, but things just arrive that I find really productive. So I have, I don't even always listen to what I say, but there's something in that process of, I walk in the woods a lot with my dog of just being in the middle of the woods and some words come to me and I put on voice record. So I have these little fragments and sometimes I listen to them or transcribe them. And sometimes they just sort of go into the the soup. (laughs) What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, interestingly, I also walk in the woods with my dog to get away from writing, (laughs) but it sometimes follows me swimming. Swimming is a really good way to actually get away from writing because you can't, it can't follow you, right? You have your thoughts, but you can't write them down. Um, I love to travel. I love to poke around. I love to wander through like villages. I had a great time in Provence just wandering around these kind of terraced stony villages. I love flea markets. Well, you know, kind of being out in the tactile sensory world or in, in nature or being with friends, a lot of different ways. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My first reader is probably usually my sister, who's a very avid reader and a psychiatrist. So very good about kind of helping me think through how and why people behave the way they do, but she's not a writer. Um, And then I have a friend who's a historian, a friend named Bridget. I show her my work early. The very early readers with very raw stuff is not usually writers. Sometimes I'll read a little bit to my husband or my kids. Um, My kids actually are quite literary. Uh, But um, and then I have writer friends when I have something that is a bit more substantial. I have probably four writer friends with this book that who were incredibly patient and read multiple drafts. But the the early, really raw stuff, if I've written something that I'm excited about and just want to show someone, it's usually my sister. She's very appreciative. <laughs> how have you dealt with rejection? Um, how have I dealt with rejection? I think I'm pretty stubborn. So in some ways, my response to rejection is I'm just going to go back and try to get it right. I think I try sometimes more successfully than others to be open to learning from the rejection, if there's something helpful in it. You know, there's different kinds of rejection. Sometimes it's just the market, like the cold, mean marketplace, you know, that there's no room for a particular kind of book because it's too quiet or too internal. And so I I try to be aware of how subjective it is and also how market-based sometimes, but I've also gotten rejection letters or comments that have been really smart, you know, this is too slack here, or I I just don't feel a heartbeat here. And so then you need to take a little while to lick your wounds and then try to make it better. So with multiple of my books, 
I've kind of thought I was done. And then I have two more years of work. I try not to be in a hurry. That's actually probably the biggest thing. And, you know, I've, I'm lucky. I have a good teaching job. I have tenure. I'm I, I'm not depending on writing for an income. If I was, I'd be in big trouble. Um, so I, I've kind of structured my life in ways that have allowed me to do the work slowly. And I think that leaves room for both for rejection and for trying to figure out it's such a hard process, but, you know, have both the outside voices that you're listening to and staying true to what you really want. So the photos in this book are a good example because lots of people thought they didn't work. And I think they didn't work for a long time because I wasn't doing it right, but I really wanted them. And so then it's a question of, okay, they don't work right now. How can I make them work? And they may still not work for everybody, but they work as well as I, I got as close to my vision of what I wanted them to do as possible. And some of that involves some rejection or some stubbornness, right? Like, okay, that's fine that you don't like them, but I'm going to keep them, but I'm going to listen to why you don't like them and try to move closer to making them do what I want them to do. What is your favorite word? That's such a hard question, but because I've been so steeped in Ladino, I'm going to share, um, a phrase, which is caminando y hablando, and it means walking and talking, but more, less literally, it means kind of time will tell, like, let's just move along walking and talking, which also gets to my loving walking and talking and writing while I'm walking. So caminando y hablando, I'm probably pronouncing it badly, but the best I can do. Well, thank you so much for your time and being on the show. I'm really appreciative. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I love your show. If you like today's show with Elizabeth Graver, author of the novel Cantica, check out my second interview with Anna Solomon on her novel, The Book of V. We talked about stealing structure from other novels, unraveling biblical stories to create fiction, and finding magic through language and setting. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 415 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and send some 10-year anniversary love. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Alice Elliott Dark, Hernan Diaz, and Jennifer Groats. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey, I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.